I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning. Today, we are thrilled to have Genevieve West with us. She is the editor of a new collection of stories by the late Zora Neale Hurston, Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick. It is out now from Amistad, which, if memory serves, is a part of the HarperCollins empire. We have her on the phone with us today. Genevieve, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to uh, thank Genevieve. We've had to do quite a bit of rescheduling because of the, the COVID situation. So thank you for being patient with us. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Let's start off with, uh, first of all, Zorniel Hurston's been uh, dead for a long time. Sometimes we get a question like, oh, why didn't you talk to the author? Well, it's impossible in this case. She passed away in 1960. Um, but Neil Hurston is an interesting and very complex figure in American letters, uh, an African-American woman who was born in the late 1800s uh, and really was part of the Harlem Renaissance and contemporary with people like Richard Wright, who was not necessarily a fan of hers, uh, Langston Hughes, and other seminal figures that we really look at as the golden age of black literature in this country. Um, Hurston was also uh, politically conservative, which is unusual uh, for people in that milieu. She was a Republican, uh, and she, I believe she was a Barry Goldwater supporter as well, if memory serves. I could be wrong about that. But she was a very um, influential writer once she was rediscovered after her death. Uh, I believe it was Alice Walker who really led the charge to uh, lead people to read Hurston again and rediscover what made her so special. Yeah, Walker helped uh, get her a gravestone. She had right. an unmarked grave in a weed-filled cemetery yeah, apparently so, so she was forgotten so, you know basically and we you know we, this follows we talked about frank yerby actually last week genevieve another african-american author who has been kind of forgotten uh, to time though was very popular during uh their lifetime can you tell us a little bit about hurston's life and what made her such a memorable and magnetic figure this is clearly a, a labor of love for you just you know judging by your introduction and, and all the work you've done on it what makes her such a, a seminal figure in american letters you know i think there are so many things um their eyes were watching god i think has really been central to hurston becoming a part of american education so students will read hurston in ap courses um, she's on the AP exam these days. Um, and their eyes are watching God has really been central to that. Um, and as you noted, Alice Walker has played an important role. Um, Hurston really restores a voice that um, some of her contemporaries would rather we not encounter today um, in our reading. There was a lot of concern about stereotypes and how Hurston's recording of vernacular African-American speech might be tapping into those stereotypes, or at least for white readers tapping into some of those stereotypes. Um, but I think a lot of readers today recognize that what Hurston was doing was looking um, very thoughtfully at problems that still plague us today. And so I think part of why people continue to read her and why she's so important is that she speaks to issues that we're still wrestling with. Um, so for popular readers, I think that's really important. 
for academics, we're still wrestling with um, the way that Hurston managed to merge fiction and folklore and anthropology. She managed to weave a lot of these kind of discrete academic traditions into really beautiful works of fiction, as well as works of folklore and anthropology. So we're really still grappling with those issues as academics. Well, let's, I want to back up a little bit because you, you raised two really interesting points. I mean, she was a trained anthropologist. She went to Barnard uh, and Columbia, I believe, as well, uh, and, and studied that and did a great deal of research on it, um, some of which was you know, not acknowledged during her lifetime. But you mentioned the use of vernacular and how she was criticized for that. And I mentioned Richard Wright. Uh, he implicitly and explicitly criticized her, thinking uh, that some of her books were presenting um, kind of a sanitized, acceptable face of American blacks to white readers. Um, and it's interesting looking at these stories today because I, I don't know if, I mean, and you would be able to answer this better than I was. I was very struck by her merging of kind of folk tales and fairy tales with vernacular in a way that, that really suggested to me a, a deep love for the rhythms of voices idiomatic expressions, and basically the rhythm of speech that was in uh, the places that she was living. And I, I think, you know, at this distance, you know, here in 2020, my, my view of it is probably different than it would have been in 1930 or 1940. Um, but I was struck reading this, um, how deep and how involved some of these very fantastical folk tales were and how they really fit into a long literary tradition that goes you know, beyond the Brothers Grimm. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting part of Hurston's life that, candidly, I, I was not familiar with until this book. Absolutely. Um, you know, Wright, was, Wright actually went further than accusing Hurston of sanitizing. He accused her of exploiting black folk traditions. He accused her of minstrelsy um, very directly in 1937. And um, obviously, I don't think that's what she was up to. Um, and a lot of readers would agree with me. Um, but really, my love for Hurston began with trying to understand how Richard Wright and I and Alice Walker, how the three of us had read the same book, Their Eyes Were Watching God and come up with such very different conclusions about what Hurston was up to. I read a, a graphic novel biography of Hurston by Peter Bagg. Have you ever, have, are you familiar with that? I have not seen that. I would love to see it. Oh, it was released by Fanagraphics. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he brought up a, a there's a, several incidents between her and Wright in the book, but he also said that I believe when she got her advance for the eyes we're watching, God, I know she had a benefactor too when she did her uh, studies in Haiti and Jamaica, but she bought a pistol and a brand new car and then toured the South and apparently didn't have too many issues while she was doing that. And she was very, uh, very headstrong, uh, very feminist persona for her time, especially for being African-American in the South during that era. Did you ever hear that story? Um, I have not heard the story about her interactions with Wright. Um, she did have um, a patron or a benefactor um, during the 20s and into the early 30s. And it's the same person who supported um, Langston Hughes as he wrote his first novel. And she also assisted Claude McKay. I think the fact that 
person had this white patron is part of the reason that people began to be skeptical of Hurston and her motives for recording black folk speech in the way that she did. Um, but she did absolutely take car. I don't think it was a brand new car, but she did take a car. Um, she called it Sassy Susie. <laughs> and in the late 20s, she drove across the American South by herself. And, you know, you have to kind of stop and think about what this means, because in our own time, this is not a big deal. In her time, not only was she female, but she was African-American. And those two things made her incredibly vulnerable on the road alone as she drove across the South, because this is the Jim Crow era. Um, hotels, restaurants, all kinds of things that we take for granted would have been segregated and she wouldn't have had access to the kinds of accommodations that you might have expected or that we would have expected for somebody in our own time. Um, and actually watching um, the movie Green Book made me really think about Hurston and the fact that she drove across the South and wondering if she used a Green Book, right, to find places to stay as she traveled. And for people that are not familiar, Green, the Green Book was actually something that was published here in Chicago. It was a listing of places that African-Americans, black Americans could stay at safely on the road. It was basically an AA manual for places that uh, would rent lodging sometimes or even sell them gas. I mean, it's remarkable to think about this today, but um, black citizens, uh, especially in the Deep South, were, were not treated uh, anything close to equals and uh, businesses routinely refused them service. Of course, this would end in the civil rights era in the late 1960s. I want to back up a little bit to what you were talking about, Genevieve, about the three different interpretations of um, their eyes were watching God. And uh, if you could expand on that a little bit, it, it made me think of our show last week on, on Frank Yearby. And there was discussion of a, of a piece he wrote in Harper's about how and why he wrote the novels he writes, and he was pretty explicit about works of art not being a political claptrap or whatever he whatever. He was a cantankerous character. Yes, yeah. yes, he was. Well, he was hard alone. to imagine now that you know anything wouldn't be politicized because it seems like everything that's coming out's politicized. Well, I mean, and at, at that time, a writer like Richard Wright, or uh, you know, I think James Baldwin was mentioned last week. There. They thought of their own art as sp specifically as political tracks, um, and so I, I wanted to know if if that's where the uh, the difference in interpretation came that you were talking about with Hurston's work. You know, Alice Walker has said um, of their eyes were watching God that there is no book more important to her, um, and Richard Wright, on the other hand, accused Hurston of minstrelsy. Well, you don't have to read a lot of Alice Walker to realize that she's not going to um, promote or believe or read something that she sees as promoting minstrelsy. So you have those two very different perspectives. Um, you know, Wright's <clears throat> review of Their Eyes Were Watching God and the novel appeared in 37. And we're moving towards the peak of the protest tradition in American literature at that point. Um, in 1939 and 1940, we would get Richard Wright's massive Native Son, and we would also get Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. So at the 
the time you have a literary tradition and a literary culture that is moving towards protest. And it's a protest that is very focused on class and socioeconomic issues. Hurston was more interested in race and gender than she was class. <clears throat> so one of the things I say in my book is that Hurston's work was caught in a kind of turning tide where she's focused on issues of race that were very predominant during the Harlem Renaissance. She's also very focused on gender. Class is less of an interest of hers, but it is very much the dominant interest in American literary culture in the late 1930s. So she's just a little bit out of step with what her contemporaries are doing at the time. Um, I think that the, her contemporaries also just did not see her treatment of gender roles in the way that we do today. They didn't see it as political. And of course, the Communist Party believed that if America would address issues of class, then matters of race and gender would also be addressed. So there are a lot of kind of competing ideas working against Hurston in 37. Um, and of course, when I come to it in, I think I read it for the first time in like 1989 or 1990, I'm coming at it from an entirely different perspective. And so is Alice Walker. So we're, we're just seeing the novel very differently. And then also having read so much of Hurston's work, reading her, her letters, her short stories, her folklore and her anthropology. I feel like I have a very good grasp of what Hurston was up to and what her goals were. Um, and that's all material that Richard Wright would not have had access to in his own lifetime. Do you think the reason that Hurston focused so much on race was her coming up in Eatonville? And will you talk to our, let our readers, sorry, listeners know a little bit about Eatonville and where Hurston grew up. It was a, a segregated uh, uh, city of freed slaves that started Eatonville. And can you go into a little bit of the history of that for us? Yes. Um, Hurston claimed to have been born in Eatonville, but census records tell us that, no, she was actually born in Alabama. This was one of her, her fibs um, as she constructed a professional identity for herself. But Eatonville is the first incorporated all-black town in America. And um, it was founded by people who were working in a nearby community and African-Americans bought their own land and they created their own system of government. And uh, when you read Their Eyes Were Watching God and you meet Joe Clark, there really was a version of Joe or Jody um, in Eatonville. So she grew up in this all-black community where I think her sense of self was very different than it would have been for somebody like Richard Wright, who grew up in a in a, in a community where um, his family would actually lose their business. Um, it would be burned to the ground because he, the business was too much of a challenge for um, white businesses in the area. So Wright's experience in the South was very, very different from Hurston's. Um, but Hurston grew up in this kind of insular, very positive, um, healthy, whole, all black community. And so she, Issues of like interactions between races were less of an issue for her. Race for Hurston was really about having and creating, promoting healthy, whole, complete 
black communities where white folks really didn't figure much into the equation. Um, and typically in Hurston's fiction, there are very, very few white characters um, that pop up. So that she creates these insular black communities that she lived in. Well, let's take a moment actually to hear a little bit of Zora's work. We're going to play a selection from the story, a bit of our Harlem. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt, and we also want to thank Micaiah McRaven and the International Anthem Recording Company for providing this week's music. We are speaking with Genevieve West. She is the editor of a new collection of stories from the Harlem Renaissance period of Zora Neale Hurston, Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick. We'll be right back after this short excerpt. He came into the shop with a pitifully small amount of cheap candy to sell. The men gruffly refused to buy or even a look at his wares, and he shuffled towards the door with such a forlorn air that the young lady called him back. She was smiling partly because she liked to smile, and did so whenever fate gave her a chance, and partly to put the tattered little hunchback at his ease. The boy approached the table where the girl sat with the air of a homeless dog who hopes that he has found a friend. Let me see your candy, little boy. She toyed with the paper-wrapped packages for a while. She knew that she would buy one even though she had but 15 cents in her pocketbook and a very vague notion as to where her next week's rent would come from. The hunchbacked boy looked too dejected to turn away, however. She handed him a nickel. Thank you, ma'am, said the boy. You certainly is a nice lady. You ain't mean like some folks. Thank you, rejoined the girl. And where do you live? I lives down 53rd Street. My mama, she dead when I was a baby, and my father, he, he dead too. Who takes care of you? My grandma, and she teach me the Lord's Prayer, and I goes to Sunday school when I got shoes. See this coat? Ain't it nice? A lady gave it to me. It's a pretty coat, agreed the young woman. And do you belong to the church yet? Nah, not yet, but I guess I will someday. A lady that used to live with us, she got religion, but after a while, her sins come back on her. Do you know my teacher? No, I don't. What does she teach you? She, she teach me how to read and count a hundred, but I forgot what comes after 97. Do you know? Let's see, 95, 96, 97. Gee, I can't learn that. Of course, laughed the girl. 98, 99, 100. What else does she teach you? She say when I go to heaven, I be white as snow, and the angel's gonna take this lump out of my back and make me tall. I guess maybe they roll something over my back like that machine, like they rolls out with the street. The girl felt very much like laughing at this original idea, but seeing his serious face, she resisted and asked him very kindly how old he was. Let's see, answered the boy. Grandma, she say I'm 15. Teacher, she say I'm 16. I guess I'm 16, because once, long time ago, I was 15 before. The young lady exhibited signs of flagging interest and asked no more questions, but the boy showed no inclination to go. His eyes never left her face, and at last he asked, Where's your mama and papa? Both dead. Who takes care of you, then? Why, I do myself. Nobody buys you nothing to eat, neither? No. The hunchback looked pitying at the girl, at himself, at the floor, and at last said in a voice full of pity, I guess maybe I can put on some long pants and marry you then, and I'll buy you something to eat. The girl would have laughed, but the world of sympathy, understanding, and fellowship that showed in the boy's face and choked his voice restrained her. How often she had sought that same understanding fellowship within her own class, but how seldom she had found it. 
Well, lady, I I'm going now because I got to make a fire in the stove for Grandma. But come back again sometime. You's a nice lady. Maybe I'll bring you some Easter candy if you have some nickels. That's the day the Jews nailed Jesus in a box and put rocks on it, but he got out. Ask the Bible. He knows. And that was a bit of our Harlem. We were able to actually tell the complete story because it's only about three pages long. Uh, and it's a really interesting little story. It, it goes, Genevieve, with I think what you were talking about before we played this, which is that there, are, first of all, are very few white characters in Hurston's fiction. But she is also very concerned about how people are treated, how class is treated, and how gender is treated, because the story very explicitly notes that the lead character is treated uh, more kindly and more lovingly by someone with a, a physical deformity who is mocked and, and uh, put to the side by many of his contemporaries than she is by, by members of her own class. Uh, and it tells it beautifully in probably less than 250 words. It is. It's a, it's a great story where you have the um, obviously educated um, person working in a, in a shop somewhere in Harlem. And this young man comes in and he um, is clearly um, physically disabled and he comes in selling candy. And Hurston has, um, I say Hurston, I think it's a stand-in for Hurston, but um, the character has this interaction with this young man Excuse me, and she she bonds with him in a way because they both lost their parents, and so they're bo both orphans, and they find a connection there um, that crosses class lines, and and that's so typical of Hurston is looking in kind of unexpected directions um, because she believed in judging people. She said duck by duck, um, so she didn't think in terms of you know whole groups. We want to. Um, it's, it's so easy as people to put others um, in our world into these large kind of groups to label them in some way. And Hurston really resisted that. I felt like Drenched in Light also had that element too when the two wealthy white people pick up this young girl and take her for a car ride, bring her back, and she wants to be adopted by the white people. Um, do you think that would have the same themes as the the last story that we heard, obviously in a different context? I, I do think there's obviously a connection there across class lines. Um, Drenched in Light is a really interesting story, and it's a story that in some ways probably contributed to the idea that Hurston was promoting minstrelsy, because you have this young child who is performing for a white audience. And so it creates that dynamic, right? That you have a child, a, a black child who um, in a very primitive sense, um, lights up the soul of the white woman, right? That was the whole idea behind primitivism in the 20s. The interesting thing is, and I think um, readers also often get kind of attracted by this idea of primitivism, Hurston is also talking about this young child who is not appreciated at home. And I think in some ways it's probably an autobiographical story, a story of Hurston as a child after her mother died and living at home with a grandparent, a grandmother who's there. Um, she tries, this character tries to do good things, um, but is often getting into trouble. Um, and she's also crossing gender lines. 
Um, this is a girl who um, likes to sit in ways that young ladies are not supposed to sit. She likes to ride horses. She wants to be out on the gatepost. Um, she wants to be herding cattle. Those are things that are not typically appropriate for girls in her time period. Um, even today, these would be kind of challenging gender norms, right? So um, it is a story that, that does some really interesting things, um, but I think you're correct that, that the character does find um, a connection across class lines there. Well, I think both these stories, and really all the stories, display a kind of subtlety that I really appreciate in, in any writer. They're not, and this is, this is connected to the question I asked earlier about works of art necessarily not being political tracks in, in some artists or some critics' eyes, the, they're not really didactic stories. I mean, they could be interpreted that way, but there there's a lot of just generic human themes up and down mm -hmm. all the stories. So, like, the, the bit of our Harlem story, I, I read that as not so much, like, bonding across class lines as I did a story about unrequited love, you know, like... You see that all the time as kids growing up, like a, a, a nice, I kind of read the boy as, as somewhat mentally handicapped, but he was really sweet and kind of sweet on this girl. And he says he's going to marry her and she kind of just brushes him off. You know, there's something kind of heartbreaking in that last interaction. And uh, Drenched in Light, the way that story ends, I don't, I don't think I'm ruining. She's yeah. been dead for, you know, 50, yeah, 60 years. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I don't know if this is one of the recovered stories or not, but uh, the way she ends it, there's no real, there's no conclusion to that, to the story. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if she's being adopted. It ends with the 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 white woman saying something about her soul being refreshed and she how she needed it. I want a little it. of her sunshine to soak into my soul. I, I need, need it. it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, and you know it's they don't leave you with some simple moral at the end of the story. You, you, you have to scan back on the story and look at all these little interactions and kind of make up your own mind about what's going on. And, uh, you know, maybe that's why she got the short end of the stick from some people, which is surprising because people like Richard Wright are really, really sharp readers and minds. I thought the little girl, too, was just very headstrong and just kind of did her thing. You know, it seemed like when her interactions with her grandpa that – that's just what she did and as as you mentioned earlier Genevieve with she wanted to be you know she wanted to herd cattle and ride horses and sit like you know any way she wanted to I think the way I perceived it anyway was that she was just doing her thing and I think you know Genevieve I don't know if you'd agree with this but I think one of the things that we're trying to get at it that ties everything together there's an uncommon grace in the way that Hurston uses language and the way that she presents ideas. It's a very subtle kind of um, controlled fiction, uh, which is very hard to do. It's, it's kind of a high wire act that she's pulling off, suggesting rather than shoving it in your face, um, giving the reader kind of the room to move and maneuver on their own. Uh, and that's that kind of, I, I really can only call it grace because it really reminds me of you know, uh, what dancers do and what acrobats do. There's this kind of uh, controlled sense of motion in these stories uh, that really allow the reader to inhabit them, even if they're just 250 words. Absolutely. I, I love that phrase, uncommon grace, because she really did believe that 
she was creating art. She was not writing a political practice. And I think this is this is part of what set her apart from some of her contemporaries. Um, you know, there was a real debate in the 20s and the Harlem Renaissance about what was the purpose of art. And, you know, the whole new Negro movement that we associate with the Harlem Renaissance, they were interested in using art as a means to create social change. That wasn't necessarily Hurston's agenda. She was more interested in just creating art. And it was art that depicted people who were very um, uncommon in contemporary literature. But these were the people she knew, these were the people she loved. And so, you know, working both against kind of the class dimensions of the New Negro movement, where they wanted to see kind of middle class characters depicted in fiction, um, but also creating that beautiful language. And <clears throat> one of the things I love about the collection is you can see Hurston's ear for spoken word evolve over the course of the volume. And by the time you get to the early 1930s, even into the mid-1920s, she has begun to really master um, the depiction of what our ears hear on the written page. And that is hard to do. It's so hard to do. Well, at this moment, let's take a moment to actually take a break and uh, let folks hear from the people that make this station possible. I want to remind everybody that you are listening to I-94 on WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. And we're in conversation today with Genevieve West. She is the author of a new collection of stories uh, recovered from Zora Neale Hurston, hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick. In fact, after these words from the folks that make the station possible, it's underwriting, not sponsorships, we're going to hear another selection from Hurston's work. We're going to hear from Magnolia Flower. And then we're going to come back for the last half hour and discuss more of Hurston's life life and work. Genevieve, can you hang around with us for another 20? Absolutely. Happy Great. to do it. All right, folks, we'll be right back after this break. Thanks for listening to I-94. And now back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. The brook laughed and sang. When it encountered hard places in its bed, it hurled its water and sparkling dance figures up into the moonlight. It sang louder, louder, danced faster, faster with a coquettish splash of the vegetation on its banks. At last it danced boisterously into the bosom of the St. John's, upsetting the whispering hyacinths who shivered and blushed, drunk with the delight of moon kisses. The Mighty One turned peevishly in his bed and washed the feet of the palmetto palms so violently that they awoke and began again the gossip they had left off when the wind went to bed. A palm cannot speak without wind. The river had startled it also, for the wind sleep on the bosom of waters. The palms murmured noisily of seasons and centuries, mating and birth and the transplanting of life. Nature knows nothing of death. The river spoke to the brook. Why, O oh young water, do you hurry and hurl yourself so riotously about with your chatter and song? You disturb my sleep. Because, O oh venerable one, replied the brook, I am young, and the flowers bloom, the trees and winds say beautiful things to me. There are lovers beneath the orange trees on my banks, but most of all because the moon shines upon me with full face. That is not sufficient reason for you to disturb my sleep, the river retorted. I have cut down mountains and moved whole valleys into the sea, and I am not so noisy as you are. The river slapped its banks angrily. But, added the brook diffidently, I passed numbers of lovers as I came on. There was also a sweet-voiced nightbird. 
No matter, no matter, scolded the river. I have seen millions of lovers, child. I have borne them up and down, listened to those things that uttered more with the breath than the lips, gathered infinite tears, and some lovers have even flung themselves upon the soft couch I keep my bosom and slept. Tell me about some of them, eagerly begged the brook. Oh well, the river muttered. I am wide awake now, and I suppose brooks must be humored. Long ago, as men count years, men who were pale of skin held a dark race of men in bondage. The dark ones cried out in sorrow and travail, not here in my country, but farther north. Many rivers carried their tears to the sea, and the tide would bring some of them to me. The wind brought cries without end. But there were some among the slaves who did not weep, but fled in the night to safety, some to the far north, some to the far south, for here the red man, the panther, and the bear alone were to be feared. One of them from the banks of the savannah came here. He was large and black and strong. His heart was strong and thudded with an iron sound in his breast. The forest made way for him, the beasts were afraid of him, and he built a house. He gathered stones and bits of metal, yellow and white, such as men love and for which they die, and grew wealthy. How? I do not know. Rivers take no notice of such things. We sweep men, stones, metal, all, all to the sea. All are as grass, almost to the sea in the end. He married swift deer, a Cherokee maiden, and five years, as men love to clip time into bits, passed. They had now a daughter, Magnolia Flower, they called her, for she came at the time of them opening. When they had been married five years, she was four years old. Then the tide brought trouble rumors to me of hate, strife, and destruction. War, war, war. The blood of those born in the north flowed to the sea mingled with that of the southern born. Bitter waters troubled wings. Rain that washed the dust from heaven but could not beat back the walls of the anguish. The thirst for blood and glory. The prayers for that which God gives not into the hands of men. Vengeance. Fire of hate and sear and scorch the ground, wells of acid tears to blight the leaf. Then all men walked free in the land, and wind and water again grew sweet. The man-made time notches flew by, and magnolia flower was in full bloom. Her large eyes burned so brightly in her dark brown face that the negroes trembled when she looked angrily upon them. She curses with her eyes, they said. Some evil surely will follow. Welcome back to another edition of I-94. Once again, my name is Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello again. And you just heard an excerpt from the late writer Zora Neale Hurston. That was a selection from Magnolia Flower, a new story in a new collection. Hitting a straight look with a crooked stick. It is out now from Amistad, and we are very pleased to be joined by Genevieve West. She is the editor and collector of these stories. Uh if we could talk really briefly, Genevieve, I don't think we've gotten into this. How did you get interested in Hurston herself as kind of an academic pursuit? What made you want to put together these stories and why these stories from this time period? This covers the Harlem Renaissance. Well, when I was a graduate student many years ago and working on my dissertation, I stumbled across a handful of undocumented stories by Hurston. Um, it was about 1995, 1996, um, and Henry Louis Gates had just released a volume called The Complete Stories of Zora Neale Hurston. Now, we now know that's an ironic title because it's not a complete volume. Um, in the year since 1995, um, myself and other scholars as well, we've uncovered nine stories that don't appear in that volume. So this project for me was really a labor of love, an opportunity to bring all of those stories together so that readers can see Hurston's voice, her aesthetic, her interests evolve over time. 
And the volume also really challenges some of the existing perceptions of Hurston. Um, one of them was that, you know, Hurston didn't write about the Great Migration. And there are a number of Great Migration stories here that reflect on what it meant to, to leave the rural South and move to Harlem. Um, so it's, it's very much been um, a pleasure for me to work on. Um, and I hope readers really enjoy the stories. Um, I think that some of the recovered stories are among her finest works of short fiction. And I hope people will enjoy reading them. Uh, I'm, and if I'm correct, wasn't one of the stories from a journal called Fire that only had one issue? It Yes. Um, Sweat is really a beautiful, beautiful story. Oh, yeah. I like that one. It's one that gets anthologized a lot. Uh, I think a lot of readers might be familiar with it. Um, but it's a great story of, you know, a love triangle where you have a woman who's doing her best to support herself and support her husband and take care of her home. Um, but her husband has another woman in the picture. And so like so much of Hurston's fiction, it, it kind of revolves around relationships between men and women. I wanted to just step back for one second to the reading we heard when we came back to the break, because um, Magnolia Flower is an example of Hurston using her background in anthropology and kind of telling some of these folk tales. Um, this, again, you know, I think I said this at the start of the show, this was a side of Hurston that I was not at all familiar with. Can you talk a little bit about what you've uncovered in your research about her, um, her own research, I guess, into the oral and folk traditions of, of blacks and African-Americans in, in our country and what attracted her to retell these stories of, of nature and, and uh, of, of slave life? Well, Hurston studied at Barnard College, um, which was then the women's division of Columbia University. And she studied anthropology with Franz Boas, who is considered the father of American anthropology. He recognized that Hurston could um, be a very effective collector of American folklore. I think there was a lot of concern that um, oral traditions were going to disappear because we're talking about about the age of radio and movies are finally on the scene. And so there's a lot of concern that these oral traditions are going to disappear. Um, Hurston in the late twenties took her car, Sassy Susie, and went to Florida, um, collected folklore in Florida, moved across Alabama, spent some time in New Orleans. She apprenticed to um, a voodoo practitioner and actually became a voodoo initiate. And so she did a lot of really interesting things. Um, <clears throat> where you see this kind of manifest itself in Magnolia Flower is that the, the story itself has a kind of frame. So you end up with, or you start and you end with a narrator that is really a river. So you have a river and a little brook who are having a conversation about something that happened many years ago. Um, and it, it's the story of a light-skinned teacher who falls in love with a young woman whose name is Magnolia Flower. And her father is a very dark-skinned man, um, an escaped slave, who is very much opposed to anything that reminds him of his former oppressors. So it sets up this dynamic where um, something has to give. And um, I don't want to give away the ending. But the story begins and ends with this, this kind of fairy tale 
um, River and Brooke talking to one another as if this story is a kind of bedtime story. She also went to uh, Haiti and Jamaica and studied uh, the religions down there, including voodoo, and the name of the book is escaping me. But have you uh, tied in anything from that experience with the folklore we have from the American South? Yeah, I think this was part of um, part of why she went to Haiti and Jamaica. She was she had done the research in America um, and had studied hoodoo, which is a little different from voodoo. Um, but in the 30s, she did have two Guggenheim fellowships, very prestigious fellowships, to go study the roots of voodoo. Um, she believed that she had gotten very close to figuring out how zombies were made. And she met one, she believed that they were real, and um, she felt like she had gotten too close and she had been poisoned. She became violently ill and had to be brought back to the United States. And she writes about this in Tell My Horse. <clears throat> I think that's probably the book that you're thinking of. That is, yes. I'm, I'm disappointed that we didn't get a uh, Dawn of the Dead version from uh, Zora Neale Hurston. I think that would have been pretty well, amazing. Well, isn't there uh, Every Tongue Got to Confess? Yeah, there is. Yeah. It, is that a, a, that's about voodoo, isn't it? Um, it does have some in it. Um, Every Tongue Got to Confess is a, a version of Mules and Men. Um, Mules and Men was the second book that Hurston published in her lifetime. Um, and she had to make a lot of adjustments to actually get J.B. Lippincott to publish it. So Every Tongue Got to Confess, we think, is an, an early draft of that book. It was a version that she probably circulated. It was a very um, anthropological version, and it, it followed the conventions of scholarly academic work for an anthropologist. What she brought out as mules and men reads more like fiction. And so it's very interesting to read those two volumes side by side. You can see um, which stories were left out of mules and men, probably because her publisher thought they would be a little bit too offensive for white readers. Um, but you will absolutely find voodoo there as well. You know, I, I don't know much about Hurston's personal life. I don't know if you guys have read her, her biography or not, but I felt like there were a few themes that came up again and again and again in stories. Um, one was was uh, mas themes of masculinity or, or the roles men had. Um, a lot of men who don't uh, earn their keep at their homes. Uh, another one was women who, it was this really subtle ob observation of women who take pleasure in self-pitying and, and enjoy their own weeping. That came up in a bunch of stories. Do you, um, have you studied her biography? Were, were these things that were uh, prominent in her personal life? Well, I mean, Hurston married three times, always to younger men, and she never stayed married for very long. So. I think her relationships with men were fraught, um, but it's beyond that, it's really difficult to know exactly where some of these characters might come from. 
but I do think a lot of it is biographical. Well, one, one of the things I really loved is a lot of the characters show up again and again in different stories. I think that's so cool. I like when, when writers do that. They have this little fictional universe. It, for Hurston, it was the real place of Eatonville, and these characters show up again and again in, in different contexts. I just wanted to point out that I really like that about her. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like Faulkner and his postage stamp of native soil in Yachtnipatapa. Hurston has Eatonville, and Eatonville is her version of that. There's actually a Chicago writer who did the same thing. Leon Forrest uh, wrote Forrest County, which I think was a stand-in for Chicago. He wrote a series of books yeah. that all took place around here. World building. You know, is there, Hurston, though, um, was a very driven individual, and, I mean, it's amazing um, – you know, she showed up in New York with what a buck fifty in her pocket, and managed to parlay that into a fairly successful writing career. She was a newspaper reporter as well, covering several sensational trials. Uh, she strikes me as a very independent and kind of self-sufficient person, um, who also had, I think, as you mentioned earlier, a real distance between who she was as a person and the public personality that she wanted to put forward as kind of Zora with the exclamation point. Yes. Um, she was fiercely independent. And, you know, at least one of the marriages we know failed because he expected her to stay home and be a wife. Um, she writes about um, their eyes were watching God being inspired by kind of the end of a love affair. And the affair ended because the man expected her to give up her work and stay home and be a, quote, wife with all the things that came with that in the 20s and 30s, like staying home, making sure you have dinner, your husband has his cigar and his slippers, those kinds of things. And that just was not Hurston. Jen, we still have some time left, but not a ton. But I wanted to get to why Zora Neale Hurston ended up in an unmarked grave in a weed-covered cemetery and kind of fell out of fashion and was uh, had a resurgence with the help from Alice Walker. Can you uh, take us down that road and why that happened? Well, you know, her family did not know where Hurston was living at the time that she died. Um, she was living in a welfare home. She'd had a stroke, and she was very much... Um, in need of assistance, but I think was too proud to tell her family that she was in need of assistance. And so at the time that she died, she was broke. Um, she had debts in the community and um, they actually took up donations to bury her. And, and so it's really a tragic, tragic story. Um, and it even gets worse when you realize that um, they started to burn her belongings at the home. And so we have type scripts of late things that Hurston was working on where the edges are burned away or whole pages are burned away because somebody set fire to them. And it's really devastating to think about what was lost in that process. What about her peers? Did Hurston. Sorry about that. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say Hurston had kind of fallen out of fashion, um, I think, because, you know, in 1960, we're on the cusp of the, you know, the civil rights movement. Um, there'd been a lot of change in America. Her books were all out of print. Hmm. And so you couldn't buy a book if you wanted one. 
And I think the fact that her books had not been reprinted in her lifetime had a big role to play in that. But I'm surprised that even, you know, even though she was a foul of Richard Wright and the, and the, and the communist party. And I, I'm surprised that she had fallen out of flavor so dramatically. Um, in, in reading some of the notes and reading some of her biography, I suspect some of that was due to the fact also that she was a woman. I think it was partly that she was a woman. Um, I think her 1954 letter to the editor where she um, came out in opposition to the Supreme Court decision on Brown versus the board. Yeah. I think that probably played a big role in making Hurston a kind of pariah. Yeah, that happened to Willard Motley, too, one of our uh, out-of-print writers here from Chicago. He was not opposed... Uh, he was opposed to integration as well. Yeah, let's 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 wrap up there. We we only have a couple minutes left, but this is a fascinating thing. As I mentioned at the start of the show, Hurston was a Republican and conservative, a black conservative, which was unusual. Why was she opposed to Brown versus the Board of Education, which of course was to lead to desegregation of schools? She didn't believe in forced integration, and what she really would like to have seen was adequate funding of African-American schools, of black schools. She would have preferred that um, the states enforce truancy and attendance laws. Um, she really didn't believe that there was anything inherently better about being in an integrated school as opposed to being in a black school with a black teacher. And of course, some of this probably was because she had grown up in an entirely majority black community that was self-governing. Self-sufficient, too. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, which is a, which was an unusual thing. So we've been speaking about the, the late writer Zora Neale Hurston, a, a fascinating figure, and this is a new book out. We've been speaking with the editor of that book, Genevieve West, Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick. It's out now from Amistad, which is part of HarperCollins. Genevieve, before we let you go, can you tell us if you have anything else coming up down the pike? I am working right now on collecting Hurston's essays. Um, she was a very avid writer of nonfiction prose, and uh, we have about 60 essays um, that I think will go into a volume. Wow. So hopefully in the next couple of years, you'll be able to, to pick up a volume of her collected essays as well. That sounds great. Yeah, Wonderful. Great. Wonderful. Well, Genevieve, thank you so much for spending time with us. As always here at I-94, we like to give the authors the last word. So we are actually going to exit with yet another reading. It is actually going to be from the Eatonville Anthology. Once again, thanks to Shannon Van Volt, Makai McCraven, International Anthem, and all of you listeners here for supporting I-94. For everybody here at I-94, I'm Jamie Trecker. Genevieve, thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Genevieve. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Jim Merchant is always in good humor, even with his wife. He says he fell in love with her at first sight. That was some years ago. She had all her teeth pulled out, but they still get along splendidly. He says that the first time he called on her, he found out that she was subject to fits. This didn't cool his love, however. She had several in his presence. One Sunday, while he was there, she had one, and her mother tried to give her a dose of turpentine to stop it. Accidentally, she spilled it in her eye, and it cured her. She never had another fit, so they got married and have kept each other in good humor ever since. Becky Moore has 11 children of assorted colors and sizes. She has never been married, but that is not her fault. She has never stopped any of the fathers of her children from proposing, so if she has no father for her children, it's not her fault. The men round about are entirely to blame. 
The other mothers of the town are afraid that it is catching. They won't let their children play with hers. Sykes Jones's family all shoot craps. The most interesting member of the family, also fond of bones but of another kind, is Tippy, the Jones's dog. He is so thin that it amazes one that he lives at all. He sneaks into village kitchens if the housewives are careless about the door and steals meats, even off the stove. He also sucks eggs. For these offenses, he has been sentenced to death dozens of times and the sentences executed upon him, only they didn't work. He has been fed bluestone, strychnine, nux vomica, even an entire Peruna bottle beaten up. It didn't fatten him, but it didn't kill him. So Eatonville has resigned itself to the flag of Tippy, reflecting that it has erred in certain matters and is being chastened. In spite of all the attempts on his life, Tippy is still willing to be friendly with anyone who will let him. Old Man Anderson lived seven or eight miles out in the country from Eatonville, over by Lake Apopka. He raised feed corn and cassava and went to market with it two or three times a year. He bought all of his victuals wholesale so he wouldn't have to come to town for several months more. He was different from us city-bred folks. He had never seen a train. Everybody laughed at him, for even the smallest child in Eatonville had either been to Maitland or Orlando and watched a train go by. On Sunday afternoons, all of the young people in the village would go over to Maitland, a mile away, to see number 35 go southward on its way to Tampa and wave at the passengers. So we looked down on him a little. Even we children felt superior in the presence of a person so lacking in worldly knowledge. The grown-ups kept telling him he ought to go see a train. He always said he didn't have time to wait so long. Only two trains a day passed through Maitland. But patronage and ridicule finally had its effect and old man Anderson drove in one morning early. Number 78 went north to Jacksonville at 10.20. He drove his light wagon over in the woods beside the railroad below Maitland and sat down to wait. He began to fear that his horse would get frightened and run away with the wagon, so he took him out and led him deeper into the grove and tied him securely. Then he returned to his wagon and waited some more. Then he remembered that some of the train-wise villagers had said the engine belched fire and smoke. He had better move his wagon out of danger, it might catch a fire. He climbed down from the seat and placed himself between the shafts to draw it away. Just then, 78 came thundering over the trestle spouting smoke and suddenly began blowing from Maitland. Old man Anderson became so frightened he ran away with the wagon through the woods and tore it up worse than the horse could have done. He doesn't know yet what a train looks like and says he doesn't care. is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Genevieve West, editor of New Collection of Stories by the late Zora Neale Hurston, hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick, out now from Amistad, a division of HarperCollins. This episode originally aired on August 13, 2020. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. 